everybody. Welcome to uh, Real Talk today. Um, it's actually an interesting episode um, without Tyler. He's away on vacation as we're recording this one. And uh, we have a special guest in studio today, uh, Mark Penninga. He's the executive director of ARPA Canada, and he's in town here in Southern Ontario. And so we wanted to take advantage of that and have a chat with Mark. Um, I know we talked a few months back ago with Ryan Manns on his job as Ontario's, uh, yeah, as his... Uh, I forgot the term again. Ontario manager. Ontario manager. There we go. And he explained to us what his role was and a bit about ARPA as well. But we thought it might be nice to talk to Mark today and um, see the whole story of ARPA going back. Uh, he's actually written a book called Our God Moves Mountains. And for anybody watching, you can see it right here if you want to zoom in perhaps. And um, so people can check that out if they're interested. Just, just contact Mark or anybody at ARPA. But we want to talk today, yeah, about the story of ARPA, the history of ARPA how it came to be some of the, uh, the historical movements behind ARPA, local chapters and that sort of thing. So before we get into it, I should probably just introduce Mark. I'll give you some brief bio stats here. He's got a master's degree in political science from the University of Lethbridge, a BA in philosophy from Trinity Western University, and a certificate in leadership and applied public affairs from the Laurentian Leadership Center in Ottawa. And he's been published uh, in many different media outlets. And we are very pleased to have him here today. So thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you, Lucas. It's great to be with you. I have to say up front, I'm pretty impressed with you guys, what you're running here at Real Talk. Uh, I know when you're producing something virtually, you don't always know where it goes. And uh, for myself, I'm, I've been edified a lot by listening to your, your uh, episodes going back quite a few months now. So you can picture uh, some bald guy up in northern British Columbia pounding <laughs> the road as he's running, listening to, to these uh yeah, great interviews. So thanks for having me. Well, that's uh, very nice of you to say. It's an, it's an honor to have you here and an honor to have you listening as well. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll get into um, what your work is, what your role is at ARPA, and then we'll kind of backtrack and we'll we'll go through the history of ARPA. So perhaps um, maybe we'll start with, yeah, again, your role, and then we'll get into what inspired you to, to write this book. Sure. I have the uh, privilege of serving as the executive director. Uh, that means that the board looks to myself within the organization to ensure that the mission's actually getting executed. So those of you who aren't familiar with our mission, it has two parts. It's to educate, equip, encourage, uh, first of all, the Reformed Christian community in Canada for political action. Uh, and then the second part is to bring a, an expressly biblical perspective to our civil governments. So in order for that mission to happen, of course, it takes staff, it takes finances, it takes events and a whole lot more. And uh, the expectation is uh, from the board to myself to make sure that it's actually happening. Uh, so coming up with a, a strategic plan, again, a vision for what the future looks like, and then being responsible for everything from the hiring to the fundraising. Uh, I get to also, um, yeah, just be, be uh, working with the staff as we try to adapt to respond to a lot of the, the political challenges, the legal challenges that we see day to day. For sure. And so in that role, um, you found the time somehow to write this book. And so what what was kind of the inspiration for writing Our God Moves Mountains? What uh, made you look to do that project? I'd say the, the biggest inspiration is the fact that we have a great God. And uh, we, uh, you know, scripture calls us to to proclaim his name, to to exalt him among the nations. And when we see God active in our lives, it's something that we need to pause and and say thanks to god and and also to to remind each other to encourage each other in what god is doing because i have to confess i'm probably like many of our listeners some of the developments that are going on are are more than troubling they can make you question they can make you wonder you know why where god are you why aren't you intervening in this why are you allowing this to occur and we can see these mountains in front of us mountains that seem like um i don't know if we're going to even be able to move forward i know that i've uh found those mountains in my own personal life. Uh, but we've also feel these mountains, you know, bigger picture in terms of culture and politics and law. And so uh, when we when we started this journey back in 2007 with ARPA Canada, when at, at that point in time, we had aspirations, we had vision and, and a whole lot more energy than I do now. Uh, <laughs> but at this time now, looking back, it's been about 14 going on to 15 years. And we have the vantage point where we can see actually a lot of those challenges that we thought may have even been insurmountable, or at least at least something that we wouldn't actually get over in our lifetime, God 
cleared them away. God actually removed those challenges or he carried us up and over those mountains. Uh, in other cases, the mountains still exist, but we see we have more understanding as to why. Like God wants that that particular challenge to exist in our lives. He has good purpose for it. Uh, so especially by by working through that this history, by, by taking pausing uh, long enough to, to reflect on what God has done, uh, it's become more and more clear just how amazing uh, God's work has been over these last 14 or so years. Uh, so uh, when we did our last strategic plan with the board, then this was a, an idea I pitched to them. That was a, um, about a year ago or so, year and a half ago. And the board was was receptive. They're like, sure. They see the need to, to tell a story. Um, I'm not necessarily a, a real storyteller myself. And the problem is my memory isn't always great. Uh, but over the years, since since I started this work, actually, I've been getting clippings sent in the mail to me, in particular from one gentleman uh, by the name of Jerry Tillema. He's a, a senior from Chatham, Ontario, okay. and he would just send these packages, these envelopes filled with clippings from old articles, you know, going back to the 70s and 80s. Really? And and I put them in my filing cabinet because it's a, it's a pretty big stack of clippings. Yeah. And you're not sure how how relevant it necessarily is to what you're doing today and so and this stack started to accumulate and it grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I every time I, I looked at it, sure I would I'd read a little bit of it. But I'd also realize there's a wealth of information here and it would be beautiful to actually go through it, unpack some of it, to look at, at the, um, the roots that extend below this organism, below this tree, to see what led to, to where we are today. And so, you know, COVID has had many, many, uh, it's led to many challenges in our lives. But one of the blessings was that when it, shortly after it hit, a number of our plans were canceled last year, some of our, our trips and so on. Mm -hmm. And so I opened up that, that box of, of, uh, of all these clippings, and I started to piece together uh, this this book, and it actually didn't take long at all. It was a, it was a joy to to do that, to put that first draft together. Yeah. And uh, I I look back on that as one of the really the highlights of 2020 for myself. Yeah, that's really cool. It's almost like doing a a little history project project, but then you're also a little part of the story as well. And and I wanted to make it not dry facts like. History, to be honest, I actually started my post-secondary studies in history, okay. and I couldn't handle it. I had to, uh, I had to, to pursue something that I thought was more interesting, more in the lines of philosophy and the really? ideas behind it and such. And yet, be, when you see the people behind the stories, when you when you get to know the real characters, then it comes alive. And mm -hmm. I tried to incorporate that in this book, where it's not just this is what happened in nineteen. You know, oh, I, no. I, I tried to tell it through the lens of, of real people, people who still surround me a lot of them in in on this journey today and i must say that's been one of the, the greatest joys in not just writing this book but in doing this work is you get to meet some absolutely incredible people people who love the lord who love you and uh, you get to work alongside them on it something that you're both passionate about yeah totally and you really that really comes through in the book too i i want to say i actually might have read it in one sitting it was so good i just it's it's filled with these yeah sure it's got the narrative it's got the story but it's got a lot of these really neat antidotes where, where you can just see like, oh, like this is uh, anecdotes rather. Sorry, correct myself there. But it's, you can just see God's work and God's hand in all of this. And it's really cool to see. Um, there was one in particular I thought, I mean, we'll go through a number of them maybe. But um, could you talk about uh, Peter Youngling? I think I got the, the pronunciation right. I checked with Mark before the podcast started. So hopefully that's correct. But he was... Uh, he was an influential figure in the pre-ARPA days. So maybe speak to some of the stories you, you found in your research there. Mm -hmm. Some of these names, you know, I would hear as well growing up. Someone might throw it out there. Oh, you're aware of this uh, Mr. Youngling from the Netherlands. Well, yeah. I don't really know anything about Dutch politics. And so, no, I wasn't very aware of it. But that was one of the interesting little tidbits that I got out of those clippings that I was mentioning earlier on. Because as we did this work, um, I'm sure we'll talk about it later in this interview. After we started ARPA Canada, as we're going doing these tours and meeting a lot of people across the country, people would say, I was actually involved in ARPA. You know, and some would say, I started ARPA back in <laughs> 1970 or 1980. And, oh, we were the first group. Well, we heard of a lot of the first groups of, oh, of yeah. ARPA. And, and so then the question in our mind was like, what? 
led to those first groups that took on the name ARPA. And although we share the same name today as back then, it was definitely two very distinct things. You know, back then it was little local associations that tended to be just organized spur of the moment or or just in a, a church basement somewhere where they're studying political issues and then it might disappear a year or two later. Mm-hmm. But they took on that name. And why did they? Like, where did that first movement come from? Yeah. Because it's actually quite astonishing. If you, if you compare... Uh, other uh, communities that have immigrated over to Canada through the through the last couple of centuries, how many of them became politically active so quickly and so engaged as the in this case the Dutch Reform community? Yeah, and uh, I didn't know that through through the years. I didn't really have a good answer to that question other than just the obvious ideological roots from Abraham Kuyper and 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 John Calvin, etc. Right. Um, so opening up these clippings, one of them shared the story of a politician from the Netherlands, uh, and yes, his name was Mr. Youngling. And he he had served as a, as a member of their parliament for, I think, about 14 years. Okay. Uh, and and in that time, um, he, he, he was probably not known as necessarily a charismatic politician. He's not necessarily the kind of uh, person that that um, would have made the the history books in in the Netherlands, but he was known as a as a faithful politician, someone who who uh, had his strong Christian convictions and who lived them out as a member of parliament. And and to be honest, although I didn't know his name as Youngling, I did know his his pen name. He went by a different name, and that was Pete Prince. Yeah. And uh, some of our our uh, listeners, maybe that name uh, jives with you because. I grew up in a home where the, there was these books written by this author, Pete Prince, the Scout series yeah, you know, about a German shepherd who yeah. came and rescued some boys. It was very exciting for yeah. a 10, 12-year-old young young boy. And in fact, I still read those books to my kids now. So it goes to show how, how long-lasting some of this stuff can be. Um, anyway, so he, he wrote kids' books, but he served as a member of parliament. And I, I, uh, I think it was because of his reputation as a, as a faithful parliamentarian that when he came over to Canada in 1977, and I, I, apparently he was asked to open the Guido de Bra Christian High School out, out here. I saw he a photo would, of that in the book. That's yeah. right. And, you know, us Dutch folk um, or those of Dutch uh, ethnicity, Dutch background, you can't just let someone come over and do one thing. If they're going to come all the way out here, you may as well sign them up for a cross-country tour. Yeah. Uh, so I, he went on the road and he visited these little Dutch pockets uh, across the country and and did speeches, uh, speeches about really Christian citizenship in a, in a secular context. Mm-hmm. And people would have questions for him. They'd say, how do we do it here in Canada? What do you recommend? Of course, the Canadian political system is entirely different than, than what we saw in the Netherlands. Yeah. And, and his advice to them was, if you don't have faith, don't start. But if you do, our God moves mountains. And when I read that now, I look back and and it really struck me, uh, hence the, the title for the book. God has moved mountains. Right now, the Reformed community in Canada has a reputation politically as being one of the most politically active demographics in the entire nation. And that's not us saying that. It's what we're constantly told by for example, members of parliament who aren't even from the reform community. Mm-hmm. They look to uh, the reform community and say, what is going on there? Because whatever you're doing, I'd love to see that in my, and then fill in the blank, you know, yep. it might be more charismatic or Roman Catholic or, or even outside of the Christian community. Sure. And, and uh, I think that that doesn't just happen to, to go from a, a community that's recent immigrants to a community that's very engaged in, in culture and law and politics uh, doesn't just happen. It takes it takes work. It takes heart. Yeah. It takes intent. And so that little tour, those that little, if you could call it a small act of faithfulness, which kind of becomes a theme through this book, these small acts of faithfulness. Um, it it's put it clearly. God used that to spark, put a spark in people's hearts. And and I saw that, that talking to different people. You know, one fellow in 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 uh, Manitoba who attended the presentation and. They started a little political association soon after, um, soon after Youngling came through. Yep. In in southern Ontario, it was the same thing. Up in in uh, nor- northern BC, there was also a, a political association started. So it's pretty neat to see that it clearly resonated. They started these little groups, uh, and and essentially those groups were the first the first ARPA groups. Yep, totally. 
And those kind of kept popping up and disappearing throughout, I suppose, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, I know, again, reading this book, there was a fair amount of uh, effort put towards uh, like the CHP throughout like the, the later in the 80s and into the 90s and whatnot. But I guess when you came onto the scene, uh, you were getting out of school, if I recall this correctly from the book, somewhere in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, you're at Laurentian Leadership Institute. And so can you speak to, there's a chapter in the book uh, and it's, I think it's, I believe it's called On the Edge of a Coulee. So maybe first explain what a coulee is for, for at least many of our listeners, probably, unless they're from Alberta. And then to explain kind of how you got your start in ARPA and actually forming this into a national organization. Well, a coulee is, as someone described to me, the opposite of a mountain. So <laughs> uh, when you're when you're on the Alberta uh, plains and you're looking towards the Rockies, it's gorgeous. I think it's one of the most beautiful areas. And I'm not originally from Alberta uh, because you see the beautiful Rocky Mountains coming out, stepping out. But in the in the prairies you have where the the rivers flow mm-hmm. creates quite a uh, indent in the land and and it essentially if you look from space you see all these veins these scars going through the land yeah. and the bottom of them you'll find the creeks and the rivers and that's what they call the coolies and it's actually a nice place it's you get out of the wind there's more vegetation yeah. and that's also where the uh, university of lethbridge beautiful building it's tucked right into one of those coolies on on, on the one side and okay. in, in the city of lethbridge um, that's where my wife and I first started out with uh, when we were married. Uh, it was uh, we made the journey from BC to to Lethbridge to pursue study specifically with a professor there who who I wanted to study under. And in fact, this story I really can't share it without sharing uh, mentioning my wife um, Jacqueline because all of these stories behind all of these stories are never just one person. There's always multiple people, and behind those people are more people. And it's pretty neat how God weaves it all together and. Uh, yeah, God in his providence had already been working in my wife's heart before we met. She was active at the um, University of British Columbia, the Pro-Life Club. Okay, She was uh, very involved there originally with Stephanie Gray, who, who's gone on to become quite a, a well-known apologist for the pro-life movement. Yep. And and um, yeah, our paths crossed and, and a common heart for political engagement is, is something that we shared. So that's why I, I share that as a backdrop because by the time God led us to that stage, when I comp- was working on my master's and close to completing it, and I sat down with Jacqueline in a, um, a beautiful little uh, hotel, had a, had a little restaurant uh, right there on the edge of the coulee, and, and we essentially wrote down on paper the pros and cons of starting a, a national uh, organization devoted to, to exactly what, what ARPA Canada is doing today. And it's something that our hearts were, were united on, and it didn't it didn't just come out of the blue. Um, I'd seen through my through the previous years examples like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, loved what they were doing in Ottawa, engaging with members of Parliament with such grace and yet also such truth, mm-hmm. and and saw huge huge potential for the Reformed Christian community to to break out of the cynicism, to break out of the the uh, apathy that that was existing in in our circles, and to to think bigger, to to uh, try to be uh, yeah God's um, representatives in 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 the public square, similar to what what the EFC was doing. Yeah. Uh, so we we penned out this vision. It was for the board of the Reform Perspective Foundation. Uh, we had met John Vorhorst. He was the uh, at that time, I believe, the chair of the Reform Perspective Foundation. He happened to be living there. Okay. He long term lived there in southern Alberta, and our paths crossed. And he knew of my uh, political interests and ambitions. So we we pitched this vision to him. The Reform Perspective Foundation board said yes. This is something we'd love to see happen. But what was apparent right away is. We couldn't run this under them. They were a charity. Yeah. We were not. This couldn't be charitable because it was just 100% political. Yep. So we started with uh, the same board, same members. They just duplicated on the ARPA board. Okay. But this started as a separate entity. So yep. long story to share the, the vision. Yeah. That's very cool. So there's a yeah a direct tie-in with the uh, reform perspective. That's neat to see. And so, yeah, it was all the same guys who were involved with with uh, with reform perspective, and then just started as NARPA, and it just went from there, right? You know what? It's been just fascinating to see where some of these roots cross. Because another fellow who I didn't realize actually had a huge role in starting Reform Perspective is is a fellow by the name of Jerry Kuick, and he ended up playing quite the role with with ARPA Canada as well. So yes, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of parallels. We've been really blessed by the Reform Perspective team. 
Yeah, totally. Well, it's good that you bring up Jerry actually, because there's uh, you have a nice story about him in the book too. Um, yeah. Do you want to do, I don't want to give it away. So you want to share that, that story that you, you give in the book there? Sure. Yeah. I, I tried to share a, quite a variety of stories, like from young people, from older people, from just a, a range of folks. And I guess Mr. Kuick would be on the, the older people side of the spectrum. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't really know Mr. Kuick other than the fact that I, I was aware he had started Premier Printing, which was a large publishing printing company in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And a lot of folks from Manitoba had worked there at Premier Printing. Uh, and he had uh, retired from, from that work, from that business. And so this was probably around 2009 or so. 2008, maybe 2009. So we had started ARPA Canada. And I remember distinctly sitting in my little home office uh, in Langley, BC, and uh, this white, shiny pickup truck rolled up. It was actually a Cadillac. I didn't know they made pickup trucks, but, really? but they do. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And and Mr. Kuick dropped by and he, he I think he was 84 years old. Oh, wow. uh, and Mr. Kuick said, you know, what can I do to help out? to help ARPA with what you're doing. Well, you have to remember at that point in time, ARPA, like is ARPA Canada is very small. Like we're talking. It's just you. It's as a staff member, it's just myself for yeah. sure. It was for the first few years, but even then like resources wise, we, we had a very minuscule budget. Mm -hmm. We were doing everything, trying to do everything with, with pretty much no budget and just whatever volunteers are willing to, to do to help out. So, of course, I try to gauge from Mr. Kuick uh, when he says willing to help out. What does that quite look like? And he made it clear. I like to drive. And uh, and he also liked the color orange and red. I remember in particular. And he said, if we could make some sort of a pamphlet, you know, nice and bright orange, red uh, that he could take with him, he'd be happy to take it on the road and, and go and meet with whoever I want him to meet with, like pastors and maybe prospective donors and tell them all about ARPA. And he's 84 and he's up to do this. Yeah, 84. Remarkable. And of course, people make, make uh, sometimes, you know, you come across people who've got ambitions. You're like, okay, sure. sure yeah. uh, we'll see how that. this goes. And in his case, he got right to it. Uh, he had these, these pamphlets printed up. Of course, he's got connections sure, to Premier. Yeah. Yeah. And he took a few boxes with him and he started to drive. And he drove and drove and drove. I forget how many thousands of kilometers he put on. In the end, he visited uh, every pastor pretty much in Ontario, I think was one of his first trips. Like from all, at first he tackled, he did it federation by federation, you know, the Canadian Reformed churches. Then he did another trip with the United Reform and the Free Reform. Wow. And then he went out west and he, he did the same out, yeah. out west. So he did multiple trips and logged, yeah, I would imagine, somewhere between 12, 20,000 kilometers. And, and not just with pastors, uh, even, even with uh, prospective donors. And he's the kind of person where he would literally just drive up to somebody's house or business. Yeah. Hello, I'm, you know, Mr. Kuick, and yeah. I'd like to explain to you why you should support ARPA. And, <laughs> and yeah, right. that was such a blessing to us because, yes, he, he asked the pastors to pray for this work, which is huge, yep. just increasing the, the, uh, the support that way. Uh, and then he asked the, the prospective donors to consider supporting it. And of course, at that time, the, the financial support would have been much smaller. People are like, this is an entity I never really heard of, but sure, maybe I'll throw in a little bit to mm -hmm. see what comes of it. But a lot of those people stayed on and their support grew and grew and grew to the point where our, our budget, I don't know what it was at that time, probably in the neighborhood of 70,000. Now it's $1.6 million. So it's wow. just really incredible to see how how that transpired. Now, um, Mr. Kuick, he, he ended up um, coming out to a, a, an event that we held in his hometown in Winnipeg uh, a few years ago, and we were able to give him a, a plaque uh, that said the Salt and Light Award. See, we've given Salt and Light Awards at some of our, our conferences to recognize volunteers. Uh, and, and we decided we're going to, instead of just call it the Salt and Light Award, call it after his name. We often don't like to associate things with individual people, but we thought his example was such a beautiful legacy. And yeah, the Lord in his, um, in his providence took Mr. Kuick home just this year. Uh, so wonderful to see how yeah, he, he served faithfully right up until 97 or so years old. That is remarkable. Wow. That is very cool. So that's a lot of work too, like to really set the groundwork to get your name out there and a lot of connections. And 
Wow, that huge. is huge. Yeah, it's inspiring for uh, anybody younger than eighty four, <laughs> yeah. or even anybody in their eighties or nineties. So that's neat. Okay, cool. There was another part in the book uh, that stood out to me, and this is more to do with uh, perhaps the political philosophy side of things. Uh, There's a fellow by the name of Groon Van Prinsterer. And um, I know, I don't know if he's listening, but uh, my old uh, high school teacher, George Alkma, always brought him up in uh, his history classes. And he thought he was one of the most uh, important figures in, in kind of the Dutch uh, political uh, uh, heritage. So if he's listening, uh, that'd be uh, be cool if we, he could hear this. But do you want to explain, um, yeah, what what he was all about and uh, what he kind of brings to uh, the work you guys do at ARPA? I can give a, a little bit of insight into it. Um, it's another name that, like Youngling, I would have heard before, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to really tell you what's the connection there. Yeah, you know, a guy like like by the name of Abraham Kuyper, that's a name more that okay, it's more mainstream. People have written about him; they integrate. Mm-hmm his ideas into into the work we do. There's books outside of the reform community all the time by Abraham Kuyper. Well, Grunven Prinster was in a sense the, the predecessor of Abraham Kuyper. Um, so you got to go back to the, the 1800s. I think he was born around 1801. So he lived, lived throughout the 1800s, again, in, in the Netherlands. And he is the one who started the uh, ARP. That's the Anti-Revolutionary Party. I know it's unique that the acronym is similar to ARPA. Yeah. I don't think there's a connection there. It's possible, but uh, yeah, and the anti-revolutionary party um, has been, I think, in many ways, an inspiration and in, in, in an example of what faithful political engagement can look like. Now, he looked at life quite differently than a lot of Christians look look at it today. He saw it, and some would say, simplistically. I don't think it's simplistic, um, but. He, he, he looked at life through the lens, and the key word here is, is the antithesis. Now, antithesis is a word that I heard growing up. But to be honest, most of the times when I heard that word, it was in the context of um, we, you know, as Christians have to be careful who we're working alongside other Christians. There's true churches, there's false churches. And it, and it felt like this antithesis, the dividing line was between churches. Mm-hmm. Now, very well... Uh, is true that there there are churches that are faithful and churches that are not faithful. But through Van Prinster's work, we can see that the antithesis really fundamentally comes down to, are we going to live a life of submission to God, to the sovereignty of God? Is our life all about glorifying God or is it in submission to ourselves? So that's super relevant to today because the same question is very much in on, on, uh, um, the table for parliament, for the Supreme Court of Canada, all of the questions come down to, is it personal autonomy? So are we, are, is it self-law autonomy is, you know, self-law uh, or, or is God going to be our guide, you know, something outside of ourself? And, and really, if your view of human rights, for example, that answering that question makes all the difference because if human rights come from in and of ourselves, then we're the ones who can decide, well, actually they don't apply to the preborn child. Uh, but if human rights come from the fact that someone outside of ourselves made us human, made us in his image and gets to determine uh, that we have value simply because we're human, then you can't take that away. Uh, and, and that's something so Van Prinster recognized really well. Now, back in his day and age, the context was often the French Revolution, this this cry for for liberty. And, yes. and, and uh, that's something that in many respects, there's still a cry for liberty today. In fact, I would uh, obviously it rings a bell in this, this COVID age where there's a lot of people mm-hmm. looking for freedom. And, and I think a, a key question that, that he would ask us and that, that my colleague Andre has asked as well is freedom for what? Is it freedom to do as we want to do or is it freedom to do as we ought to do? So I think that that question uh, goes to the heart of what, what Van Prinster is, is, is talking about. Because if, if we have the freedom to do what we want to do, that's really revolution. It's that we are God and we want to go our own way. But if we want freedom so that we can do what we ought to do, then it's so that we can live in conformity to the way that God designed us to live. Uh, and, and that's really, I'd say, the thrust of Van Prinster's work. Yeah, that's a very fine line, though, eh? Like to, to determine, especially when it comes to making uh, political allies and working together with people who, are, you would think are like-minded, but often for many people who are concerned with freedom who are not Christian, it's exactly as you said, it's freedom to do as they please, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. Mm-hmm. Is there, I mean, I know ARPA's non-political or in terms, sorry, non-partisan, very much political, but non-partisan. Is 
do you guys have any advice in terms of, um, yeah, like aligning, I mean, when it comes to voting or like working with people, how do Christians cooperate? And you guys obviously do this on a daily basis, not all, but how do you cooperate with people who share some of your values, but maybe not all of them? How do you go about making those uh, distinctions and determining like, okay, is this a good trade-off? Um, is this a good alliance to make? Can we work with these people? How do you, like, what are some guiding principles, I suppose, when you guys are faced with making those kind of decisions? I guess it's not as complicated as you might think it, it, it could be. So mm -hmm. um, I, I believe it was John Dykstra from Reformed Perspective who wrote an article once about the difference between allies and co-belligerents, where we, we definitely have allies in, in this movement. So these are people who we see eye to eye, but maybe have different, you know, there's a division of responsibility. So within the pro-life community, ARPA and We Need a Law, we have a, a very specific task, uh, but there's other fantastic groups like Life Canada, for example, that's more on the educational arm. You know, we'd be allies. We're working together, common purpose, and we work very closely with a lot of organizations. Um, almost most of the name organizations that, that you might be familiar with that are doing similar kind of work in the public square, chances are talking all the time behind the scenes, making sure that we're coordinating our efforts. So for example, on a, on a court challenge, uh, if we are intervening in there, you'll find a group like the Evangelical Fellowship or the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms or the Christian Legal Fellowship, they take an angle. We'll make sure that we don't overlap with them. We'll take a different angle so that the court is getting uh, just great arguments from all different kinds of perspectives. And you know what? It's not actually that difficult to do that going into this work i would have expected it'd be more of a, a constant assessing of like how who can we work with on this particular file there's a great deal of unity among um, christians and in some cases even beyond the christian community because you can see you align with these core convictions like life or freedom or, or whatever other thing that you're fighting for yep. um, and I, I guess i saw that even before ARPA started, ARPA Canada. I worked for Focus on the Family prior to that for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, it was in that time where I saw, look, we have brothers and sisters uh, who are doing fantastic work that we need to work alongside. And that's something I made really clear in that vision letter to the uh, board when we started this entity that we can't do this work in our own silo. We need to be very much doing it alongside these other these other Christians. Um, then there there is a group as well that, that maybe fits more in the realm of, of co-belligerents. Uh, and, and there too, I'd say, we just focus on trying to do the best we can with the resources that God gives us. And then if other groups find that useful, great. And if, if there's ways in which we can um, publicly align ourselves, like one example is this Loyola Supreme Court case, uh, where I think we ended up with a coalition of close to 250,000 people and ARPA organized that one. So you can bet there was a huge range of, yeah. of, uh, of schools. There's even post-secondary institutions uh, as a part of that coalition. But but we're totally able to, to be united on the key principles that we're working towards in that court case, even if we might not have been united on, you know, what church looks like Sunday to Sunday. Uh, and that's that's a beautiful thing when that happens. Yeah, no, that's remarkable. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. That makes, that makes some more sense to me. It's uh there's a difference between yeah, allies and, and co-belligerents as, as John put it in that article too. Um, I guess moving on, we've been talking a bit about the, uh, the principles and the philosophies behind ARPA. Uh, we can jump back more to the timeline, I suppose. So for the first couple of years, it's yourself. Um, I guess you started as part-time then kind of came full-time at a certain point. Um, you're joined by another staff member and that staff member was Andre Schutten. Can you tell us the kind of the background, the story of how Andre became involved in ARPA? Yeah, it's, I said earlier, small acts of faithfulness. And, you know, I think Andre's first exposure to ARPA was his decision to, to do something small and kind. He, uh, he was serving food at our, one of our first cotton government events in, in Ottawa. Again, we had very little budget. So that church community that he was part of said that they would provide some food to help us out. And he just stepped up and volunteered to, to help out that particular day. And uh, later on, um, he was in law school. He might have been in law school at that point already. Uh, and he just needed some some work for a little stretch. He was just in between, in between I think it was studies and, and uh, a summer position. So he needed some work. And uh, his pastor said, why don't you give ARPA a call? And so who's on the other end of that phone? It was just myself. So yeah. we met and uh, 
chatted a little bit. I'm like, hey, here's a, a law student who wants to put his time towards, you know, like a good cause. Great. So we gave him one project. It was a, a legal guide to help churches in response to human rights complaints. Now, of course, we think, oh, that seems manageable, but it, it led to uh, sharing this legal guide. And of course, churches have then a lot of questions of how to implement it and make it their own. So that little project grew. And yeah. uh, by working with Andre, we saw just how much we uh, have in common. In fact, um, there's many ways in which Andre's unlike me, but in so many ways that I, I aspire to, that I, that I really love and appreciate. And his, his enthusiasm for uh, what we could achieve, his vision for uh, being a voice in, in Ottawa, for example. At that time, he didn't picture that as with, with ARPA, but he, he, he thinks big and that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, so he, we asked him to join us on a tour that fall. And again, back then, you know, Andre's the kind of guy who said yes, even though going on tour meant, uh, you know, going to random communities all by himself in the name of ARPA when he wasn't even technically an ARPA employee. <laughs> so it's quite the, quite the challenge. We offered him a job and said, why don't you work full time for us when you're done your law school? And he said, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, he, his heart was to go into criminal law and uh, that's the path he was on. Uh, and then God intervened in his life and uh, in a way that, you know, Andre at the time probably would have thought that, wow, there's a mountain in my way. And and instead he said, actually, I'm, I am going to uh, apply because we had put a, a job posting out. We were ready at that time to add a second employee. So we said, regardless of Andre, we'll, we'll advertise. And I look in my inbox and one of the applications is from Andre Schutman. And really the rest is history. Like God has used Andre in just such a, a massive way to, to not just... Um, assist many of us, but to inspire many of us. I share the story in, in this book too, of how it was one of Andre's presentations before the court on the Trinity Western court case, uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, Andre really wrestled with in that presentation with whether he should incorporate scripture directly into that, into that uh, argument. And, and he did, he chose to, and he did so very well in a, in a way that, that the judges could clearly, um, understand and, and appreciate. And one of the people listening, actually, in the, it was in the BC case, was uh, a young lady by the name of Tabitha Ewart. Tabitha is someone we didn't know, uh, but she was, she was listening to Andre's arguments. She was inspired and she was studying law at University of British Columbia. She was inspired that this is the kind of work she would like to be doing. Uh, and she she finished her law studies and and uh, went to us and said, "Could can I work for you?" And she started articling for us, and we're like, "She is perfect, perfect for this role." And yeah. now she's working full time as the legal counsel for We Need a Law. So it just shows that, that beautiful thing where one person's action so often inspires a whole lot more action. Yeah, just continued small acts of faithfulness and that just builds. Yeah. yeah, I mean that is really the theme of this book, and yeah, it's really cool to see. Yeah, you kind of connect the dots and, and share these personal stories and, and just how it all comes together. It's yeah, it's beautiful to see. Maybe we can talk about a bit. You talk, you mentioned Tabitha there, um, but maybe let's back up. Uh, at one point, uh, we need a law gets founded, mm -hmm. and obviously it's very much uh, yeah, tied in with ARPA. Can you speak to how that uh, also came about? Yeah, that's a, another beautiful story. I realize I go on and on with these stories, but you just see God's work so at hand and. I guess I'll start with um, Mark Warawa. He was at that time my member of parliament in, in Langley, British Columbia. Now, Mark Warawa would be similar to a lot of members of parliament who maybe some of our, our listeners have an MP who, who is Christian, but you don't necessarily see it in the work that they're doing. Um, they're not a champion on a lot of the issues that, that we really think need leadership. And, you know, when we met with Mark Warawa, it seemed like he was a bit uncomfortable talking with some of these issues. And he was more interested in his barbershop quartet, like his singing with, with some of the other MPs. Oh, yeah. And that was earlier on, though. Well, God worked in his heart. This, the Holy Spirit was at work through the years. And it came to the point where um, Mr. Warawa was convicted that he needed to do more. Uh, and there was another gentleman in, in that community. His name is John Hoff. Uh, John Hoff uh, worked as the uh, the leader of was first Campaign Life Coalition BC and then Alliance for Life uh, BC. John John is a, a champion. He's he's a Roman Catholic gentleman. He's he's been a champion for for the preborn, 
and um, John and I knew each other. John said, I think Mark Orowa is is ready to do something, like something courageous for the preborn. And we met with him and we encouraged him to go big, like to to even introduce a full-on abortion bill. And uh, perhaps our listeners are aware, with, with private members' business, the way it works is that a member of parliament can essentially get their name thrown into a hat and they have an opportunity to introduce a private member's bill. But the order in which they're picked out of that hat is the order in which uh, parliament can deal with it. And it just works out that generally you're not going to, your, your bill's not going to really be dealt with if it's too far down that list. And yeah, by God's providence, Mark Orwa had a number selected that was higher up on that list. And and yet God worked this passion in his heart to the point where he said, I'll do it. I'll, I'll introduce a bill. And, and at that time, the vision was, was big. It was like a comprehensive abortion bill that would have gotten Canada in line with other Western uh, nations. So similar to what you'd see in Europe, for example. Yep. Well, of course, that receives um, quite a bit of pressure as he's trying to uh, move forward with with this this idea and we had to meet with him regularly and keep on encouraging him yes this is worth doing it now one of the things that he was seeing though the problems is recently one of his colleagues tried to introduce a, a pro-life bill it was called Roxanne's law and this colleague was similar to today you know really lambasted really challenged yep. and uh, unfortunately got very little support from the pro-life community especially the organized side of the, the pro-life yep. community and Mr. Warawa was concerned. He's like, if I go out on this limb, like who's going to be holding this up? Who's going to be helping me out? And it's not like members of parliament have that many resources as well to, to help them with things like research and, and such. Uh, so we said, Mark, if you do this, we will be there for you. We will do everything we can to be there for you. And I took that really seriously. Um, already in that vision letter to the board, I had said to the board, Preborn human rights should take a disproportional amount of our time as an organization because I saw real potential because Canada was so out of line with all the other Western democracies. And uh, as things worked out, uh, Mr. Warwa wasn't like he ended up changing his mind. He ended up not introducing that bill, but he did introduce a bill on our motion on sex selective abortion. In fact, that that work is carrying on right till today with a recent bill in parliament. But in order to to stand behind him, in order to support him, as we promised, I knew I didn't have the time myself. I, I was stretched thin already. Uh, so I I made the case to the board to hire somebody. And, and the person we had in mind in particular was, was Mike Shooten. I'd seen Mike Shooten run a campaign there in Southern BC, um, a political campaign for, for federal office. It was actually for the Christian Heritage Party. And Mike, even though it was for the CHP, he ran it like he was going to win the thing. Like, I don't mean with a, a type of arrogance, but rather with a type of excellence and, and hard work and determination. And seeing that hard work, I thought, this man has skill. This is a special guy. And uh, so I approached Mike and said, Mike, would you consider devoting your life in this such a capacity? Well, you have to picture at this time, Mike's got six children and just had his sixth child around that time. And he was... Um, doing a completely different career in the horticulture industry it was just on the, the cusp of even um, buying a business to to become a career for for their life so big big financial commitments there too but God laid it on his heart and he said later on when we were reflecting on that that he thought if he'd say no that it you know God wouldn't be pleased God wanted him to do this and when I look back from then on as well, like we need a law and the role that first Mike played and then others on the We Need Law team has been a, a huge part of the, pro, the uh, pro-life movement since then. Uh, behind the scenes, it's the organization that, that's uh, going to great lengths to work with members of parliament to assist them with, with bills, both federally and, and provincially and even work in the courts. Yeah, for sure. No, that's remarkable. It's, it's, it's really encouraging to see the work you know, We Need Law has done. And, uh, yeah, even I'll say like, just as a, a younger person in involved in politics, like I used to work, uh, I think the listeners know in Ottawa on Parliament Hill for a year. So I, I got to see that up close and personal, the work that ARPA uh, has done and is continuing to do. And yeah, it's inspiring. It's, it's, it's all I've ever known in my political life. So I can imagine, I mean, I, I don't take it for granted and it's great to see, but I can imagine for someone like yourself being a part of that journey and, and seeing, yeah, the, the rise of, of what ARPA has been able to do. And the faithful influence they've been able to have has is, is got to be encouraging for sure. 
I, I want to touch on one more quick uh, quick story, maybe um, about an important volunteer in the history of, of ARPA, and then we'll get to uh, we'll get to closing in terms of where ARPA is now and some some questions people have and, and some visions for the future. But could you tell us a bit um, briefly about Bruce DeBoer and uh, the impact he's had? I could see for again for for listeners here, a smile comes to Mark's face right when I say his name. So yeah, just speak to the impact of Bruce and what he's been able to do with ARPA. Bruce is uh, someone who I didn't meet until we just showed up in a community. It was Toronto, actually, to to pull off an event. Now, again, back in those days, we'd want to bring our mission to different communities across the country. We we try to find someone in a an area where we think there's potential, and then we rely on that volunteer. Like we, sh- it's almost like a cold call, except for you're doing an event. So I didn't meet this Mr. Bruce DeBoer until we were there on the ground in, in Richmond Hill. I just remember Bruce as someone who was right away very helpful, very cheerful, and drove this big white 15-passenger van that he took me, uh, I think, to dinner with. And when we're at those initial stages of ARPA Canada, and if there's someone who is uh, eager to help out, we seize that, right? Like, we're not going to let oh, that yeah. go by. <laughs> yeah. And Bruce was someone who was more than eager to help. When he committed to something, he committed to it. And for example, uh, that 15 passenger van that was white, he decided, hey, I'm gonna wrap that whole van with uh, a message about, and I think it was pre-born human rights, the very first wrap that he did. Yeah. And literally every square inch of that van, the sides, the back, not messy, beautifully designed, nice nice uh, um, artwork promoting pre-born human rights. And picture, and you know, Bruce's family lives in Toronto. So they're driving this van oh, yeah. down uh, 12 lanes and, and surrounded by 5 million people. Uh, and his family then just lived it. And Bruce really coined that term, ARPA Organics. That is, that we just have to live this mission day to day. Don't just keep it to your letter writing or to, you know, when you happen to be doing a conference in Ottawa, something like that. Just live it day to day. He likes to make things practical. Uh, and Bruce, because he stepped up in a big way with with just that everyday volunteering, then we ended up saying, hey, would you be willing to join us on the board of, of ARPA Canada? And I have to say for myself, there's been certain people who've, who've helped a disproportional amount and without whom I don't think I'd be able to be doing this work today. And, and Bruce was one of those guys. He's the kind of person where, you know, when I'm by myself in my office, a little bit, um, stressed having to work on a particular issue, I could make a phone call to Bruce and he'll pick it up. And I remember one time I wrote it in the book too, where we talked through this issue, must have been at least a half hour call. And then Bruce very politely tells me as we're concluding the call that he's about 40 feet up a tree with a chainsaw in his other hand uh, because he's this this landscaper. I'm like, that's Bruce. He's that kind of guy. He'll give me that amount of time without even mentioning that he's 40 feet up a tree. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, Yeah. serving on the board, he he had to step up in a big way when our other chairman, um, John, uh, moved on and, and he moved on pretty abruptly. And then Bruce right away stepped in, in to fill that place. And that was so, uh, so invaluable uh, to myself. And since then, I know he's done the same on the Reform Perspective Board. For sure. Yeah, he's been a pleasure to work with. And he's, yeah, he gets stuff done. He's a good leader. And uh, yeah, we're thankful to have him at RP as well. So, okay, we've done a bunch of stories and that's been awesome to hear. And you've spoken to, yeah, a number of key uh key personnel at ARPA. Uh, where is ARPA at today? Like, what are we talking employees wise and how big and whatnot? And then, um, yeah, what are your, you often focus on strategic plans for the future. How do you see the missions that you mentioned at the beginning again, those two missions um, playing out in the future for ARPA? Yeah, by God's grace, we've grown to 16 staff now. So 12 of those are full-time, four of them are part-time. We have offices in Ottawa. That's our our office that obviously focuses on more federal issues and such. Um, I think there's about five full-time staff there in the Ottawa office. We have also a small office here in Southern Ontario now that Ryan Manns has started on as the Ontario manager. And then most of the other staff are in Southern BC. So uh, office just outside of Yarrow in Chilliwack area and Northern BC where, where I live in Smithers. Um, we, we, in the Smithers office, we deal more with the administration side of things in terms of, of, of the actual day-to-day work. Yep. Uh, and then we have a, a person, Ed Hogerdyke, who serves out of, out of Calgary in Alberta. Um, in terms of where ARPA is going for the future, 
uh, we've reached the point in time, I think, where because we've done things now for about 14 years, we have a, a good sense of what God's calling is for us in this this day and place, what works, what doesn't work. And for example, one thing that became very evident to us is uh, in Alberta, when when Ed Hogardyke came on board as the, the Alberta manager, having someone on the ground who was able to assist the grassroots, especially through the challenges that the schools were facing there, yes. the, the schools were not just losing, potentially losing their funding, also their accreditation very quickly. And and Ed was able to play a huge role in terms of galvanizing the opposition to that effort. Yeah. We saw that and we right away saw, this is something we need to replicate in other places. So we hired a, a BC manager and an Ontario manager. So I say that because the, the focus on, on provincial um, politics, on, on um, provincial issues, is something we definitely want to continue with and even grow and expand. Uh, and and the, while not giving up the, the federal issues. So Colin Postma serves as our federal issues manager. And that's been so invaluable, having just one person who deals full time because we've had so many bad bills coming out of parliament in the yep. last, especially in the last year again. Um, so we'll, we'll continue those efforts federally, provincially. And then if people have read the books, you'll see more and more focus has been on the courts. So uh, we see a lot of fruit has been borne by our, our legal interventions. We've been really blessed by God that almost every effort we've made to intervene was approved by the courts. That's not something to take for granted. You have to apply. The judges have to say, yes, you're going to contribute something valuable. You have a track record here that's helpful. And then we've seen some pretty astounding uh, successes. Again, just this year, out of the Supreme Court of Canada, we had a huge victory in uh, the AGA decision, something to do with just protecting churches to be able to make decisions about internal matters like church discipline without secular courts uh, being able to intervene in in these church decisions. Um, So we'll keep that focus in, in the courts as well. So you might say, well, what's changing? What's, uh, you know, how's ARPA going to look different in the coming years? Well, one thing in which I think we've already started to look different is if you, if you see our day-to-day action, a lot of it is being done, not by people with white hair or people like myself with no hair. Uh, it's being done by the youth. Uh, we have school clubs across the country now, almost every single reformed high school. Uh, there's a, a school club with a um, similar to a, an ARPA chapter. So I know, Lucas, you've been invaluable helping out with a ARPA chapter here in, in the, in the uh, Niagara area. Um, these school clubs do the, the similar kind of work, but geared towards youth. So right now in, in a few uh, weeks, we're hoping to do a conference in Ontario, one in Alberta, one in BC, just for high school youth. And I must say, when I was a kid, if you were a young person interested in this kind of stuff, you'd be kind of a geek and yeah. not saying I wasn't, but uh, <laughs> the back in, yeah, there just wouldn't have been a lot of interest in, in, you know, an ARPA school club. Well, right now it's very popular. In fact, uh, in the last one we did in Alberta, I think there was over 80 youth. There's so much interest. We actually have a hard time dealing with all the interest. When we do our youth conference in Ottawa each year, we have to turn away over half the applicants. Uh, so we get to wow. pick really the, the best the best ones. Cream of so, the crop. Yeah. yeah. When, when I see that, then it makes me pretty excited about the future because it definitely wasn't that way when we started with ARPA Canada. There yeah. was very little interest from from the youth. I, I'd say overall, in, to, in terms of answering your question, the biggest thing that we do moving forward is to try to do a better job of what we have been doing. Okay. There's there's room for improvement. Uh, and, and that includes just in terms of faithfulness. So having the courage to bring a distinctly biblical perspective, but to do it in a way that's super helpful to, for example, members of parliament or judges, accessible, or for our grassroots, that they don't just say, see, oh, ARPA has another policy report on a particular issue, and boy, it's going to be hard to read through this thing, but instead they get it like accessible, so something they can read in one page or something they can find on Instagram or, yep. or however it might come. And so there's just always room for improvement to, to do what we're doing. Uh, but we we definitely find our mission has never been uh, more relevant. Like someone just told me that we, we were doing a presentation the other night in Fergus and, yep. and the gentleman said to me, so grateful that ARPA has grown to this point now in this point in time, because the issues we're dealing with, you need a big team, you need lawyers, you need uh, a yeah. variety of staff to, to, to deal with all these challenges. So that's definitely true. We're very grateful to God for that. Yeah. Well, I, I think I speak on behalf of all your supporters, but we're very 
thankful for all the work you guys do. Um, are you, uh, do you think it's sustainable uh, with the current size of our or do you think you have to grow your staff? And if so, like more lawyers or more other like uh, managers, like how does that look? Although we've grown and been very open to, to growing, obviously with aspirations, it's been striking that the growth hasn't resulted because we said it has to happen. So there's, there's a type of strategic planning where you say, we want to have these positions and, and, you know, be in these offices doing these things, um, with a budget of X and now, you know, God and by extension, God's people, please provide, you know, we've never worked that way. Instead, we do have, we see huge challenges, for example, in the legal realm, there's, we just know it's going to only grow in, yep. in the years to come. So we know that if we can have more legal staff, for example, that would be a blessing. So we keep our eyes open. We keep our ears open. That's something I do really day to day looking for, for good staff. Uh, but then we only take those steps when we see the Lord has already provided. So first of all, with, with finances, sure. and that's been just so humbling, so amazing because Often we're partway in a year and we're like, Who, how's this going to work out? And for myself, especially the board looks to me to make sure that, you know, in this case, $1.6 million comes in with no charitable status, no foundation support. Like a lot of other charities and, and nonprofit groups, they get a guaranteed funding, you know, from some, some big sources. All of our dollars have to still come in each year again from just individuals. So everyday moms and dads and others. Uh, so it's get partway through the year and you're like gulp you know are we going to yeah. make it and then always uh the lord provides and and for quite a few years now by the end of the year he's provided more than what we've needed uh so we can do two things with that we can have a you know grow a bank account and we can also use that to expand like to add staff and and what we've done essentially for the last number of years is both we've tried to develop a reserve because i sure remember the days where we had no reserve and it was really stressful um, so this will hopefully get us through harder times. Uh, but then we also use as much as we can of it to grow staff and some organizations will put invest a lot of the resources into things like, you know, office buildings or, or nice equipment, big events. We tend to invest almost all of our resources into, into things like staffing and publications, et cetera, make them as, as pretty much inexpensive as possible or even free. But with staffing, when you invest in staff, especially in a way where, where, um, they can do this job realistically to support a family, for example. And we found that that sure pays because these staff stay with the organization. They, they keep it growing. Uh, so, yeah, there too. It's been just awesome to see. I don't know what the future will look like in that regard. If you'll see ARPA has, you know, 20 or more, 25 staff in, in the years to come, it's possible. At the same time, it's possible that ARPA doesn't exist five years from now. And, and I'll be honest, that thought doesn't doesn't keep me up at night feeling, oh boy, that would be a bad thing. Because when we just see the the impact that's happened, when I, I just came from an event minutes ago before this interview, when I see, for example, that the Niagara region, the way that they live and breathe this, the way that they're so informed on the issues, and I see like the mission has been accomplished, is being accomplished. Whether ARPA exists or not, it's kind of beside the point. God is watching over his church. He'll keep that going. He'll keep protecting his church, even if he uses different organizations to accomplish that. Yeah, for sure. Although I will say it is nice to have still a beachhead of support in Ottawa and some, some guidance and some leadership that way. So yeah, we all, we hope you're here in, in five years and beyond that as well. So, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's great to hear, especially for even any of our, of our younger listeners too, if they're interested in getting involved and, and want to join an organization that continues to make a difference uh, every day. That's ARPA. Definitely give ARPA some thought in that regard as well. I guess maybe to close, um, you also do this in, in your book too, but you tackle some of the, the more common questions you get from, from ARPA supporters. And I think one we're seeing a lot of these days, we were chatting about this before the interview, is you know even despite the success of ARPA and some of the big wins you guys have had, it, uh, you can't. there's only so much you can do with the culture and the direction it's heading. And a lot of people feel, yeah, discouraged and, and let down. And it's it can be tough to sometimes feel like, you know, we're making wins and we're making progress. So are, if people are telling you that as, you, as you're on your tour this fall, what has yeah, been your response and the response of ARPA to, to encourage people and, and, yeah, let them know that, no, this is important and we are still making a difference? 
The short answer is our God really does move mountains. Um, a, a longer answer to give it some substance is when we started this, so back in, in 2007, if you look at me, I am not the guy you would pick to to start an entity like this. Like you'd probably want someone who's you know, articulate, someone who's really smart, somebody who is uh, has leadership experience. Like you could go on and on. Like that's the kind of job description you'd put out there. I'm not really any of those things. And and yet what I've seen true throughout this whole journey with ARPA is that if we look to God, He does provide. And that's something that he's done every step of the way. So I want to encourage our listeners. Sometimes you look out there and you see these things that look really impressive, especially in our in our social media world. You see organizations, so much of it is, is image-based, quick videos, people who seem like they're really on top of the issues, they can sure articulate it. And you think, that's sure not me. And you think, what am I supposed to do? You know, I'm just a mom. I'm just a, a farmer. I'm just a fill in the blank. Uh, and yet what we've seen is true is, is in many respects, that is exactly what God needs is a, just a fill in the blank. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 has really been the theme text for, for me in this whole journey with ARPA, where God talks about using the weak things of the world. And he explains that he uses the, work, the weak things of the world to make the point that it's not about us. It's, it's yeah. about him so that all boasting is in Jesus Christ. And we can see with this journey that it is God and God alone who moves those mountains. So I admit we still hit a mountain, you know, this last couple of weeks. I've been really torn at what to do, what to think, how we're going to engage with the whole vaccine mandates and, and vaccine passports. And we think, how are we going to get over this? And my wife reminds me, just got to chill, calm down. It's going to be okay. And, and, it always is okay. And I don't mean to say that these issues don't matter. What I mean to say is when God promises us, he's never going to leave us or forsake us. We will see that that's true when, you know, one month from now. And if we, if we actually journaled in between, we'll see that we didn't need to become fearful. And, and I want to encourage our listeners, don't underestimate what God can do through you. I, I really have underestimated uh, what God can do. And, and he's worked amazing things, not through myself, not even through ARPA, um, but he's worked these things in his own way through through all sorts of means and means that we would have never seen coming together. And and a big part of that is all the people he's he's pulled together. So if maybe I can not very good at public speaking, well, then he brings along colleagues like Andre or like Tabitha and, and a host of others who are fantastic at it, way better than I am. And he, he does that in our lives all the time. He, he gives us what we need in his own time, in his own way. He just wants us to walk by faith today. And maybe I can encourage you as well, Lucas, and what you're doing here with this real talk. And I think that it's exactly the same thing. You're taking steps of faith, trying to get listeners to be aware of some of these things that matter from Christian counseling to uh, listening to a, a Russian academic talk about education. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating, fascinating interviews. They're not just throwing more words out into cyberspace, adding to the noise. We really are, as, as the theme of the tour that I'm doing with ARPA right now, is we really are growing our roots into Jesus Christ. And, and it takes takes these steps of faith, these small acts of faithfulness, really encourage you to keep on at it. Amazing things can come from it. And I really look forward to that day when when Christ comes back and we're all gathered around his throne and, and it says books will be opened. And uh, I, th I think we were going to see just how God worked this story into his His story, right? History. And, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. So press on, keep running that race. It's definitely um, it's something we need to persevere in. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Mark. I, I appreciate the encouragement. And uh, yeah, it, it truly is small acts of faithfulness. And God, yeah, uses the weakest to, uh, to work through and, and show, yeah, the work that we do is for his glory. So yeah, thank you for all the work you do at, at ARPA and for and yeah, you on behalf of the rest of ARPA as well. Just thankful for all the the faithful work that you guys are doing in Ottawa and across the country. And uh, yeah, it's it's a real inspiration for all of your your supporters and followers on the ground. And we just uh, yeah, just want to say thanks and thank you for coming on today. It was a pleasure speaking with you, learning more about the history of ARPA, and we hope that uh, yeah, listeners will be inspired by the story and and uh, continue to. Yeah, 
make small acts of faithfulness in, in their own lives. So till next time, folks, we'll keep having real talk and we'll see you then. You betcha. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. You can send us your feedback by emailing us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. You can find us on social media by looking for the handle Reformed Real Talk. You can find us online by going to realtalkpodcast.ca. We look forward to your feedback as that's what helps us grow and improve as podcasters. Real Talk is produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, Tyler Vanderwood, and Tim Van Woodenberg. The theme music was created by Calvin Hutton. The table and cabinet behind me were made by Ethan Vanderwood of Eureka Woods. And finally, this sign in the studio was made by Zebra Signs. That's it for now, folks. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.